Well, it really is a joy to have you back, Mike and Tim. Thank you for leading us so well. It is a joy to be in the house of the Lord. It's no wonder the psalmist tell us that better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. It's a real joy. It's great to see a number of you back uh, recovering from perhaps ill health and mentioning that, continue to pray for people. There's still a number of the church family down and in this winter flu season. And so keep praying for them. Keep praying for the fruit of the impact conference. Thanks again for serving in that. We had impact here. Liam Mitchell is on his own little impact. Uh, Liam Mitchell is in Brazil. Uh, Is he there yet? He's there. Yeah, Liam Mitchell's in Brazil with what they call the impact uh, little missions taster there. So pray for for Liam. Uh, We're thrilled with all the Lord's doing uh, in and through him and in his study. And so there's many, many reasons to rejoice at this time. The Major and Jardine family are engaged in church growth uh, in a significant way. Keep it up. And um, we rejoice uh, in all that's going on. We have much to be thankful for as a people, don't we? Uh, We face trial and we face heartache. uh, And yet uh, the Lord uh, is with us. And uh, we'll see a little bit about that uh, this morning. We're in John's Gospel, as you know. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way verse by verse through John's Gospel. We're in John 6 at the moment. And we're finally going to finish this chapter. I say finally as though I want it to be done. No, no, no. We could stay in this chapter a lot longer. Uh, We could revisit it. And who knows if the Lord wills, maybe in decades to come, we'll revisit it uh, again. But we're in John 6. And all 71 verses serve as a wonderful uh, treat and feast to us, the people of God, to, to dwell in. We know, don't we, that when we dwell in the pages of Scripture, we are face to face with the glory of God revealed in the person of Christ. We know that. And when you think about John's Gospel, because we're finishing John 6 uh, today, and because, I just want to let you know, we'll be taking a little break I figured after 71 verses and 10 messages and 50 sermons in John's Gospel, it would be a good idea to take a little bit of a break. And so, Lord willing, beginning next Sunday, I want to begin a series, three-part series on really, we could call it, I think we are calling it, a life worthy of the Gospel. A life worthy of the Gospel. We've been deeply marinating in a bunch of indicatives, meaning the realities of who we are in Christ the gospel that we have received, and all those things. Well, the New Testament gives us exhortations as the people of God to live a life worthy. And I think it's time where we begin to maybe be encouraged, exhorted, admonished, urged uh, to live a life worthy of the gospel. And I say that with fear and trepidation for my own heart, as well as all of us, as we, we consider some of the things that God has for us in light of the gospel. In light of who we are, what we've received. We've received from the fountain of living water. We then go out and live a certain way. And so I really want to burrow down in some of those things. But for today, it's John 6. And you'll see that this passage, where we end, really serves as a wonderful launch pad for that series that I've just mentioned. But John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. It begins with these 
sweeping, amazing, Trinitarian declarations in the first five verses. Then the first 18 verses serve as this prologue, which means it explains everything that else is that's going to occur in the remainder of the gospel. Then Jesus begins his public ministry. He goes and performs that miracle at the wedding at Cana. That beautiful, beautiful event that would have just been full of fun and music and laughter. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And he does it in purification pots, which shows us that there's an abundance of purifying grace in the Lord Jesus, but there's also an abundance of joy in the Lord Jesus. And then he cleanses the temple, and then a, a, a man who no doubt was intimately acquainted with that temple, Nicodemus, comes and, and comes to Jesus kind of in secret, and Jesus then tells him, you must be born again. You must be born again. And then after that, there's the whole ordeal, wonderful uh, account with the woman at the well. And remember that, we considered long and hard what was in the water. We've received regeneration, we've received the new birth, the living water. Then there was these healings of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, and then in chapter 5 there was the healing by the pool at Bethesda, the man who'd been there 38 years. And then when you swing around into John chapter 6, you obviously have the feeding of the tens of thousands, and this is where we kind of find ourselves now in the bread of life discourse. You remember Jesus has confronted these people because all they wanted from Jesus was physical blessing. They just wanted their tummies to be full. Jesus confronted them with that. They even came on the other side of the river. We've seen that. We also saw in the midst of that that Jesus sent the disciples out onto the, the sea, whipped up the storm for them, prayed for them. We saw the ramifications of all of that, that God ordains our trials the Son of God is praying to the Father for us in the midst of those. And Jesus always arrives at the right time. And then the Jews begin to grumble. They begin to argue. They begin to see these masses of crowds of people beginning to follow Jesus. And we saw last week I described to you that the, the word disciple that John uses repeatedly in this latter part of John 6 that we looked at. It refers simply to someone who is a student or a follower. And we saw that John explains that there are disciples in that they are just superficially attached to Jesus. And then there are disciples. We could say that they are supernaturally attached to Jesus. Well, in our passage of consideration this morning, verses 66 to 71, we're going to see what marks those disciples that are supernaturally attached to Jesus. What is it that they are evidenced by? What marks a true follower of Jesus? So the crowds have gone, and all that's left is the twelve. And so let's read John chapter 6, verse 66 through to verse 71. As a result of this, we looked at what this was. As a result of this, that was all the bread of life discourse. That wasn't just about Jesus saying, my flesh and my blood, but it included everything. Him in the incarnation, Him coming as the sole means and the exclusive means of salvation, the sovereignty of God in salvation, and, like, like, and, and all that. As a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew. Not true converts, but those that were superficially attached. They withdrew and they were not walking with Him anymore. They had enough. They came to Jesus just for physical blessing, as I said. He, Jesus ramped it up and they bounced. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, 
You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for your word and thank you for worship on this day. Lord, receive our hearts of praise and now our hearts of attentiveness. Receive them both as an act of worship. Send your spirit to do a mighty work amongst us. Father, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we pray that He might attend to us in very specific ways, each heart specifically needing application. Would you bless the preaching of your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. When Sam led us in communion, he read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, began in verse 23. And you note there, and I really noticed that, is on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Betrayal is intimately acquainted with the ushering in the new covenant. John's chapter 6 here ends with the mentioning of Judas, one who is a devil, one who was going to betray him. You know, in the Greek, in verse, chapter, uh, in verse 70, it actually is better rendered, one of you who is the devil. The devil. The idea there is not that Judas is not responsible for what he does, but in the fact that Satan is the one who is working in and through him. And you remember I mentioned last week that John chapter 6 begins with this beautiful feeding and the, this, this beautiful grass. John even writes about this. They sat down on this green grass. And then it ends with betrayal and the devil. Between the beautiful grass and the betrayal of the devil is just this slow ramping up. Our Lord faced great crowds and pleased people and then eventually they all went away. And He suffered. Well, in many ways, John 6 is reflective of what the Christian life can be like. We need comfort in life. and We certainly have comfort in death. And for the tenth and final time, I'm now going to read to you the Heidelberg Catechism. <laughs> The Heidelberg Catechism in 1563 asked the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own. Listen to this now. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins. With his precious blood. And has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way. 
that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's the cry of a believer. That's the comfort for a believer. A true disciple. And so here, as I said, we're going to see in our passage this morning, what being a true follower of Jesus Christ looks like. What are the marks? Perhaps you're here this morning and you'll be comforted by these marks. Perhaps you'll be here this morning and you'll be challenged by these marks. Do you have Christ? But that's not the most important question. Does Christ have you? Or do you reject Christ in your heart? There really are only two types of people in this world, just as there are only two types of religions in this world. The two types of religion reflect the two types of people. One is a person who is wholesalely rejecting God in the person of Christ and trying to earn their own goodness by their own works. And the other is a religion of divine accomplishment where the person comes and rests fully in the works of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And then in light of that, they ask the question, how then shall I live? Am I marked by what it means to be a true disciple? And so this is a challenge. It's a challenge. And that's the heading, the first heading that I have for you. A challenge in verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? This is the first time that that little phrase, the twelve, is used in the Gospel of John. It's only used one other time. This is a question that is expecting a negative answer. You see, Jesus is omniscient, meaning that He knows everything. Jesus is not asking this question as though it's out of fear that the twelve might leave. You could read it like this. You don't want to go away also, do you? No, no, he is not fearful that they want to leave. This is quite the moment. Jesus is saying, surely you don't want to go away also, do you? This is quite the drama. It's quite the drama in the fact that the twelve have just witnessed the crowds of people who were enthusiastic about Jesus just simply walk away. They walk away after hearing the bread of life discourse, which I said is more than just the shocking words at face value of Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, but encompasses everything, including that He is the true bread that comes down out of heaven. He is incarnate and He is the exclusive means of salva- way of salvation. And with all that, they left and now is just left the twelve. And so this is a challenge here from Jesus. And why does He do that? Why does He, why does he say to them at that moment and turn to His disciples and say, you don't want to go away also, do you? Why does He do that? Well, He does it to test their faith. To test their faith. He does it to test their allegiance. 
He does it to test their loyalty. He does it to poke and provoke their motivation for life and their affections and what has their heart. You see, right here, it was very easy to follow Jesus while the masses were fawning over Him. Very easy to follow Jesus while the crowds adored Him. It's very easy for us to follow Jesus when the crowds adore Him. It gets a little harder though, doesn't it, when they... They move their hostility towards Jesus towards the hostility of the followers of Jesus. And it's not so popular or even cultural any longer to be a Christian. Days like ours. It's easy to follow Jesus while the crowds adore Him. And so just as Jesus tests their faith here, Jesus tests our faith. Mark this down. Every challenge that you face, every hurdle that you and I have before us, every valley and mountain that lays out on our horizon, all come from Him. He pushed them out into a boat, into the middle of the raging sea. He did that to test them. And here, in the midst of walking with Him, He does the same. He was discipling the twelve here. He is discipling you and I here. I'll leave it to the Spirit of God to apply in His beautiful ministry. To apply to each and every soul here, including my own, the very specific area in your life, the challenges that you face, the hurdle that's before you, the valleys and the mountains. Know that He is discipling you. He is working in and through you. He is alongside you. You see, in this challenge here in verse 67, Jesus is looking for loyalty and allegiance. And that really is the mark of a true disciple. That's really the first mark we see here. The mark of a true disciple is loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. After the challenge, we now see a confession, if you're taking notes. A confession in verses 68 to 69. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him. Well, that doesn't surprise us, does it? Does it surprise you that it was Peter who spoke first? You know, when you survey the Gospels, Peter is the leader among the twelve. Sometimes people get uncomfortable about that. and We we need to consider you have the twelve. Jesus calls the twelve. He chooses the twelve. And then from among the twelve, he focuses on three. Peter, James, and John. He takes them away multiple times, just them. Says, no, sorry, you guys can't come. Takes them, takes them up even to the Mount of Transfiguration. Reveals His glory to them. And then from among that three, 
Jesus focuses on one, and that's Peter. Peter led from the front. Peter spoke first. He was often the spokesperson. He often spoke his mind, and he had often hard lessons to learn from doing that. God disciples all His precious people. And Peter says to the Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Who else do we have to go to? I mean, what alternative is there? Is what Peter's saying. To whom else shall we go? Well, when you think about it, there's many places we could go. There's many places Peter could have gone. There's many places the twelve could have gone. There's an abundance of places that you and I could go. We could go to other religions. We could eventually just say, you know what? This Christianity is not for me. The church is full of hypocrites, failing to realize that everyone's a hypocrite. And so just all come together and be broken and sick before the Lord. We could go to other religions, but we know, don't we, from Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no other name. And so maybe there's a soul here who's wondering, is Christianity real? Should, should I consider other means for my life? No, no, there, there is no other way to God except the Lord Jesus. And so we can't go to other religions. They're futile. They're all the same anyway. They all just try and earn favor with God by doing good things. Ask any person from any other religion and they'll give you the same answer. We could go to the philosophies of the world. We could do that. Self-help accomplishes some tangible, temporary Earthly good for a little while. And Colossians 2, chapter 8 warns us not to elevate the philosophies of man, even if they are good. And there are some good philosophies. You think of the philosophies that some people study, like logic. There's good things like that, but we're warned not to elevate the philosophies of man above the Word of God. Otherwise, as has been well said, the gods of earth, not the God of heaven, take over our thoughts and guide our path. We could run to the philosophies of the world. We could go to the world itself. We could run to the world. Perhaps the valleys and the hurdles and the challenges are too much and you just run from Christ out to the world. The world promises so much fun and fulfillment. The God of this world, small g, lies to you that there is freedom in the world. But we know, don't we, that the Apostle John himself wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and to 17, do not love the world. I remember going to preach on that. It was one of the first sermons I ever preached before I went to seminary. It was a terrible sermon, by the way. And I remember... A friend that I grew up surfing with, he said to me, do not love the world. It was very confusing to him. God loves the world. 
Why does the Bible say do not love the world? And in the study, obviously, we know there that the world is used three times. It's the creation, it's the people, or it's the anti-God satanic system that abounds in the world because the God of this world is a liar. John says in that passage there in 1 John chapter 2, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, boasting in our possessions, does not come from God. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so we could go to the world, but we then learn that that wouldn't go too well. We could go, we really could go to a life of consumerism. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. I mean, this is a good question to ask. To whom shall we go? Where could we go? We could go to heaps of places. We could go to a life of consumerism. Look at verse 16 of Luke 12. Jesus began to tell them a parable. Saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for your many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward We could go to legalism. It's funny, when we hear that, we're like, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. But then our own pharisaical hearts drift off to legalism. We could go to moralism. We go to this kind of legalistic, moralistic way of thinking and living, kind of like the Galatians did. If you read the book of Galatians, it is a rebuke to people who did that. People who were professing the name of Christ, people who were regenerate, born again, that is a scathing rebuke to a people who did that. They did it by primarily returning to the law of Moses in a way. They were making external works the marks of a right standing with God in justification. And so when we consider all of those things, we must hearken back to what Peter said, speaking for himself, speaking on behalf of the twelve, and certainly a mark of faithfulness when he said, no, no, we can't. There's no other place to go. There's no other person to have allegiance with. Because only you, Jesus, he says, have words of eternal life. Peter has grasped what Jesus had said in verse 63. Look there, of John 6. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. Peter has grasped this. And also, the Spirit has given Peter and the twelve, obviously minus Judas, new life. New life. You know, sometimes when we, when we observe the disciples, we see them, you know, they are uh, often pre-Pentecost. They're kind of, um, they're in this interesting time and we're like, when were they born again? When were they, what, what, how are they working here? Well, remarkably, verse 69 tells us something beautiful. Because we know right here for certain that the twelve were regenerate at this moment. Look at verse 69. We have believed and have come to know. We have believed and we have come to know. The the two verbs in verse 69, believe and know, they are in what is called the perfect tense. Perfect tense. Verbs have tense in Greek and in English. Perfect tense is what is going on here. Present tense verbs, they convey a continuous action. Continuous action, an ongoing action. But perfect tense verbs convey an action that has already occurred. Peter is saying here, we have believed. We have known. We have come to the true place of faith, is what he's saying. We have come to the true knowledge of who you are. That is conversion. That is regeneration. And it is from that place of regeneration and conversion that Peter now begins to really evidence for us what are and what is true affection and true allegiance for Christ. A mark of a true disciple. And the first thing I want to draw to your attention here, still under this second heading, a confession, is that a true disciple is marked first by, number one, a dedication to the Word of God. A dedication to the Word of God. And Peter says there, you have words of eternal life. You have words of eternal life life. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 7 for a moment. Ezra chapter 7. Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 and look at verse 10. Very familiar passage in the Old Testament. I'll tell you about a very familiar statement that Yahweh made about Ezra. He said, my good hand is upon him. My good hand is upon him. Look at verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach it. To teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. 
So what marked Ezra was this study of the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God. You remember last week I made mention of a beautiful verse. Jesus said later on in John. No, it was in Luke actually. He says, my brother, my mother and my brothers are the ones who hear the Word of God and obey it. Ezra is studying the Word of God. But he's not just studying it. He, he set his heart to study the law, it says, the Word of God. But he's not just studying it. He's obeying it. He's practicing it. Now, you can't obey or practice that which you don't know. And so he's studying the Word of God. And then he's obeying the Word of God. And then he is teaching the Word of God. And Yahweh says, my good hand is upon him. I want God's good hand upon me. I want to be studying the Word of God. I certainly want to be obeying the Word of God. And then if God calls you in such a way, you want to be teaching the Word of God. You know, 1 Peter, chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, you can go back to John if you like. 1 Peter, chapter 2, very familiar passage. It calls the Christian to long for, to long for the pure milk of the Word. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, like newborn babies. Some of our new mothers here would tell you, man, they just they, they want the milk, they cry for it, and until they get it, they are restless. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow. So that by it you may grow. What's incredibly interesting about verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2 that calls us to long for the pure milk of the Word is the verse prior, the beginning verse. It says, put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You want to know why there's not a welling up in your heart at times because for the, for the Word of God? is because you and I are engaged in the sinful act of malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. It gets in the way. It gets in the way of it doesn't get in the way of just some type of mechanical reading at the breakfast table or during lunch or during dinner. It doesn't get in the way of that, but it gets in the way of what Ezra experienced, the blessing of God's hand upon you by studying and obeying it. Putting it into practice. Once we lay aside those things, then God works in us like newborn babies a longing for the pure milk of the Word. That's what marks a true disciple. A longing for the Word of God. And so a true mark of a Christian is that they are dedicated to the Word of Christ. The, the very Word of God. Peter says, you have words of eternal life. I want those words. I need those words. I'm so given to putting my hope and trust in man. And even Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 33 and 34, says to Peter, you are setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. You need the Word of God to avoid tipping over like that. They're words of eternal life. 
That's the first mark inside this confession of one who is in loyalty to Jesus. The first is that they have a dedication to the Word of God. In our passage in John 6 now, Peter then shows us a second mark of a true Christian. And that is, they not only have a dedication to the Word of God, they have a dedication to the very person of Christ. A dedication to the person of Christ. Look at verse 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a very unique phrase. In fact, it's only used here once and just one other time, that's all. The only other time this phrase is used is by a demon who was possessed. Sorry, a person who was possessed by a demon. Imagine a, imagine a possessed demon. Wow. This demon-possessed man said it to Jesus that you are the Holy One of God. It's very rare in the Old Testament as well. Hardly ever appears. But you know, when you read that, the Holy One of God, what does it remind you of? It reminds you of the all too common, well, very common phrase about Jesus that He is the Holy One of Israel. Holy One of Israel. Peter's words here show us that true disciples have not only a dedication to the Word of God, but to the person of Christ Himself. Bestowing upon Him and assigning to Him the highest worth. Not, 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 not high worth, but the highest worth. The highest allegiance. We can be given to misplacing who has our highest allegiance. Too often it is ourself. Too often it is bestowed upon those who are not worthy of such an allegiance. It must be upon Christ as the highest place. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two. This is not Peter, this is obviously Paul. Paul says in First Corinthians chapter two, verse two, look there, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wanted to know. Jesus. The reason this can all be a reality for the true disciple, the believer in Jesus, the reason all of this momentum of a dedication to the Word of God and a dedication to the person of Christ really summed up most beautifully in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So you're there already. Look at verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. 
which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Look at this. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's a, that's a staggering verse. Dead in our sin, possessors of nothing, without hope and God in this world, alienated in our mind, hostile towards God in our heart. And then we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may freely know all things given to us by God. I mean, think about that. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. We've received the Spirit of God. We see the things and understand the things freely given to us by God. Flick over to Philippians chapter 3. And look at verse 8. Well, verse 7 is a good place. Whatever things were gained to me, what things were gained? All of Paul's religious achievements. Moralistic, legalistic. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. There is something about the disciple who doesn't just simply want an intellectual understanding of the Word of God to be able to, to repeat it just ad nauseum without any affection, but there is something inside the heart of one who has received the Spirit of God to gaze fully at the person of Christ. And not just to talk about little facts about Him and little trinkets about Him, but to plumb the depths of Him and not just marvel that He fed people, but to go beyond the surface and to marvel that He saves people, that He is God in human flesh, that He is altogether beautiful, that He is altogether glorious. Colossians chapter 1 calls Him the exact image of the invisible God, the one who reveals God to us, the one who, Colossians chapter 1 says, made everything and who upholds everything. In Him, the Father was pleased that all the fullness of deity would dwell in Him. We just, there's something about the true believer who longs not just for intellectual facts, but longs for the person of Christ. To know Him. That I may be found in Him, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may, look he says in verse 10, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The true disciple is marked by a dedication to the Word of God. And a true disciple is marked by a dedication to the person of Christ. 
And you know what's incredible? And so very simple and so very basic is that you cannot know the value of the person of Christ apart from the Word of God. You can't. You simply cannot. And so, back to John 6. There's this conf- a challenge at the beginning. There is a confession. The challenge is to see, do you, do you have allegiance and loyalty to Jesus? The confession is, are you driven and dedicated to the Word of God and to the person of Jesus? And then, the third heading for today is a choosing. A choosing in verses 70 to 71. You know, this is, um, this is very interesting, at least to me. I hope to you. I'd always wondered why Jesus in verse 70 says what He says. Did I myself not choose you? I mean, it just always seems like a real strange thing to say at that juncture and then go on and talk about the devil and then John says he meant Judas, so we get to know who that is. I always wondered, why does he say that? I mean, it just seems like a... He just hears this beautiful confession by the regenerate disciples that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, did I myself not choose you and one of you is a devil? I mean, I mean that's hectic. Well, I want you to know that what's displayed in that confession by Peter, even though it is true, even though it is right, even though it is commendable, even though it is exemplary, it is also an overconfidence from Peter. You say, what do I mean? Well, grammar matters, and the word we, in verse 69 is incredibly emphatic. There is great emphasis on the word we. Peter is regenerate as we've seen. He's born again. He's believed. He knows Jesus in a salvific sense. He's marked by a hunger of the word of God. A hunger for the person of Christ. But he is also displayed that he himself is still on a journey and needs growth. You acknowledge that about yourself? I think it's really easy to acknowledge that about others. I think it's very easy to look on at others and say, oh, they need growth and they need growth. I mean, we do that to each other. But it's better to stop and say, where do I need to grow? Because here, we can look at Peter now and say, look, he needs to grow a little bit. Just as the Lord looks on at us and says, We need to grow a little bit. He got a little overconfident. Let me explain. We have believed. We have come to believe and know. We are not like the crowds of people that just left. We know 
the truth. We're not like them, Jesus. We, we, we. French. And so Jesus says to Peter, having picked up on that we, did I not choose you? Why are you carrying on like that? Did I myself not choose you? I I think that is a beautiful, fitting way in light of all that Jesus has said through this entire chapter. And what has He said? No one can come to Me unless the Father draws him. Repeatedly. He has displayed the grand absolute sovereignty of God in salvation time and time again. I mean, he repeats it all the way through. He even says in verse 65, For this reason I've said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Hey, Peter, you're too overconfident. I chose you. Don't get ahead of yourself. I chose you. Yes, we must always maintain a beautiful balance In the responsibility of man and the absolute sovereignty of God. But I tell you one thing. God receives all glory and all the praise because of His grace. This is powerful. That's why He says it. Did I myself not choose you? The twelve? And yet one of you is the devil? Verse 71, he meant Judas. For he was the one who was going to betray him. You know, the marks of a true Christian are that they have loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. They have a dedication to the Word of God. They have a dedication to the person of Christ, which includes suffering, even betrayal from those closest Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, For to you it has been granted not only to believe, but to also suffer. This is the truth. They're the marks of a true disciple. Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus? Have you acknowledged that He is the Savior of the world? The only Savior the world has? Have you acknowledged that He died on the cross for your sins? Have you acknowledged that He rose again the third day? Have you trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins? What about the precious people before me? Who maybe wonder, am I a true disciple? I've heard all of this and then I think, man, am I, am I a true disciple? <clears throat> I think it's really, really important to consider that I never have to be perfect enough to trust in Jesus. 
I don't have to have felt something enough to have trusted in Jesus. I don't even have to look back necessarily as the ultimate means of whether or not I'm a believer. I just really need to say to myself, today, am I trusting in Jesus? Am I resting fully upon my Savior? Is there truly nothing in my hands that I bring, but simply and solely and exclusively to the cross of Jesus Christ and Him I cling? You know, I say that because if you spent the rest of the day, the rest of the week, and the rest of your life asking yourself, do I have enough desire for Christ and these things, then you will drive yourself insane. Instead, what you must do is look outside of yourself and your desires and look to Jesus. Look to Him and trust in Him. And rest fully in Him. And don't worry, as it were, if you have conjured up enough desire and affection and diligence. But just look to Him. Believe in Him. And then from that rest that you have will come the dedication for His work and the desire for His person and the ability to endure what our Lord endured, suffering and betrayal and the like. From here is a beautiful launch pad into what we will consider over the next few weeks a life worthy of the gospel. Because this is a very precious thing. And that if you are a disciple in the Lord Jesus, you have believed and have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Not because we did it, but because He did it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity. We thank You for this time in Your Word, Lord. Father, would You comfort, comfort and grant assurance to the believer who is unsure because they just look inwardly at themselves all the time, help them to look outside of themselves and rest in Jesus for their justification. That it might ignite in them gratitude that will propel them along in their sanctification. Pray, Father, for anyone here who doesn't know You, who's not a true disciple, or not even a disciple at all, that they would have heard and seen that Your Son is the Holy One. The most worthy One. And that today would be the day of their salvation. And that we would all leave here with a little more desire for Your Word. 
and a little more desire for your son. And that would bring you more glory than all God's people said.